This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. This is episode 101 and it is February the 17th. Now this week we're dipping into the archives. We appreciate a little bit of time off, but more importantly, it allows us to revisit some important conversations we've had on the podcast, like this one from episode number 16. This was back on June 4th of 2020, a conversation with James Evans, the CEO of CARE, Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity. June 4th, 2020, it wasn't that long ago in the overall scheme of the world, right? But just think back to what was happening at that point in time. We were all struggling with the impacts of the COVID pandemic, and then the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of the police, and the protests and demonstrations that followed forever changed this country. And the conversations about racial inequity, the impacts of systemic racism, have helped those who are willing to listen better understand the issues facing their friends, neighbors, and fellow Americans who are people of color. And those conversations extended into animal welfare, how our lack of diversity and inclusion has impacted our ability to save lives, how our biases affect the way we hire, the way we select adopters, engage volunteers and donors. And for me, the opportunity to sit and talk with brilliant folks like James, it's always eye-opening and I learn a lot, even listening to this episode again, I picked up some things I hadn't before. So if this was one you previously listened to, I'd encourage you to give it another listen. And in the time since this aired, the Best Friends Network team has created lots of valuable resources around diversity, equity, and inclusion. For example, we have things like playbooks to help you implement culture initiatives at your organization, editorials, blogs, town halls, research. Check out the link in the show notes area of your podcast player, or you can always go to bestfriends.org podcast. Here now, my conversation with James Evans, the CEO of CARE. Where to start? Uh, you know, last night was another night of protesting demonstrations. I think I saw this morning all 50 states now have had uh, some type of demonstration, and it's a pretty wild time. I'm excited to, well, excited maybe isn't the right word. I'm thankful to be able to sit down with you to talk through some of this stuff. So thank, thanks very much for taking the time. Of course. Yeah, I, we were out actually, actually yesterday um, for the mayoral election here in Baltimore, and it was it was very peaceful. But obviously, there's been a lot of um, you know traumatic events in Baltimore. Um, I mean, Freddie Gray was insanity. It hasn't gotten quite to that level, but um, the National Guard is out. There is this meshing of two worlds: the the, the world that I come from, obviously. I'm a descendant of, of African-American parents. And then I transcended into this animal welfare world. And, and years ago, I, I wrote a blog about the, the nuanced blend in between and that I, I come from people who were effectively treated like chattel, you know, whipped, uh, forced to breed. Um, and so my entree into um, animal welfare and all, all of this um, passion around protecting those animals that are forced to breed and forced to work. And I, I, I'm looking forward to the movement taking on other human beings like myself and that with that same zealous. Yeah, I, there has been that shift, you know, where 
uh, on the podcast, the work that American Pets Alive has been doing on, you know, this animal uh, social services model where, you know, we have moved towards helping people and including that, but really kind of formalizing that and codifying it to say, this is truly important and this should be part of how we do it. So, I mean, it's I think it's important that you mention um, this this sort of movement within animal welfare to be um, more humane, because I don't think many know that I'm part of that movement. That's a subsection of the problem in it, in itself. I, I'm a leader in that sort of humane movement. Um, we were hired by the Humane Society of the United States in 2008 uh, to work on the Gulf Spaniard campaign. This was right after Katrina. There were a lot of roaming dogs, a lot of um, issues with the overpopulation. Um, at the time, those two states were the highest euthanizing states. And so we were hired to, to do this campaign. And um, the result of that was a, a great increase in spay neuter and a reduction in euthanasia. And it was about a $2 million campaign that was funded by Maddie's Fund. Um, at the end of that, near the end of that campaign, Heather Camisa came to us from HSUS and said, hey, you know, we see great numbers and reduction in all over Louisiana and Mississippi, except for these two areas. And she asked me, you know, why isn't this working in these two areas? And we looked at the zip code and these were the, the poorest of the poor, um, the most underserved of the underserved, you know, $7,000 a year in income. And I explained to Heather, you know, we can't ask these folks to pay for low cost spay neuter. Uh, when low cost spay neuter is 40 bucks and they can they can eat at McDonald's for 40 bucks all, all month long. And so we took the last $500,000 and we created Pets for Life um, over a, a one year process. And that that 500,000 was matched by another 500,000 from PetSmart Charities. And so we, I think, documented fully sort of the suffering of the South and people all over the country. Pets for Life quickly, quickly grew into this 36 state um, or 36 city program where we're, where, we're, where we're helping hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and I think we're up to a million um, at this point. And so I think that's what launched animal welfare into to this much more what about the other guy? What about the other side of the leash type of movement? And I see conferences constantly mentioning social justice now um, as a result of that Pest for Life movement. But very rarely, even though I, I think I'm a well-known-ish figure in the field, very rarely does anyone ask me my opinion on social justice or where and how much social justice has really become a part of animal welfare even though I think without my work, those kind of conversations would have never happened inside this field, at least maybe not for another five or six years. So I, I, it, it is all interesting. I think there's a lot of progress, but I think there's also a lot of um, usurping of narratives by others in this field. And I understand it. it it's When you get excited by something, it you want to attach yourself to it. But I, I really think we have to when we start talking about things like that, we need to come back to the source and say, why did this happen? And what gave this insight? And what what really gave it passion to begin with? Yeah, listening, uh, I think, is, again, something we've gotten better at in the way we relate to people, right? We want to hear their concerns. We want to know how we can help them. But in this 
conversation. And listen, I'll own it. We started talking about you know this as an episode and how would we would approach it. And people kind of gravitated towards names that we've known, yeah. names that we know in our movement that are white people. Yes, that, you know that have spoken out, and I think are good, strong voices, good yeah. allies. But I think we have to really listen to people uh, who are experiencing this. You know, uh, which I, again, that listening is it, it's a skill. Uh, that I think we all need to work on. Yeah, it's it's a vital skill. I think there is a, I, I think the 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 term white privilege, right, and bias has become equated to being racist. When really, I I don't believe that at all as a person of color. I think white privilege is is not a white person's fault, um, but it doesn't mean it it shouldn't become your responsibility to help resolve. And, and the concept around the country where, where social justice and injustice is talked about and the presence of an African-American voice or Latino voice is, is not present. Um, I think those are the things we have to look at ourselves. And I, I think the, the idea of a group of, no offense, white women putting on an expo or what have you and showing I'm not your Negro at the expo, right? And then there are no Negroes in the room. <laughs> it's just to when there could be, right? I, I, I have made myself available. I think very rarely um, have I said no to any kind of conversation about social justice or race and how it impacts the field. So I think we have to ask ourselves, we are talking about a group of people that we actually haven't engaged in conversation with. It would be like the women's movement, right? Being run by a group of men talking about the rights of women without asking a woman to speak. And so I think it's really important for us to just, you know, put ourselves in the other person's shoes for a moment and just, and ask ourselves if I were the victim of this, or if I were subjugated to this issue and someone was speaking on it, wouldn't I want to be at the table, right? And I think that white privilege in many ways has, it affects all of us. It affects people of color, it affects white folks. And it, it suggests that white men and women, particularly white men, always have the solution and that people of color are always in need. And so as good white folks, we're going to go out and we're going to help these people. And I think that's one of the misconceptions of the golf campaign. Obviously, we're working in Louisiana and Mississippi and all over the country like Camden and Detroit. And there were an abundance of need there of people of color. And those people of color were certainly left behind. And I think the program did a great job in highlighting the need. But I think when we when we started bringing those photographs back and they started permeating animal welfare and people go, wow, we really left those people behind. I think there's another subset of people of color that we've also left behind who are who are not necessarily in need. They may be underserved in some ways, but these are some of the most intellectual people in the country, some of the wealthiest people in the country. And we've also not invited them to the table. So my, my work with CARE is just simply to balance things out, to say, you know, we have a, a beautiful and diverse country. It is the reason why, one of the reasons why we're successful. And for animal welfare to be as successful as, say, for instance, the Army, diversity has to be a part of it. I mean, the armed forces were amongst the first out of necessity, right? We had to win that civil war. 
to become diverse. And I think animal welfare needs to take this this war on saving, right? This desire to save lives uh, in the same seriousness as the army and the air force have, have begun to take seriously the need to include everyone if we intend to um, ensure safety for all Americans. If the problem of diversity and inclusion is a hundred inches long, the fact that we're having this conversation means that we've turned it into 10 inches. You know, I, I, and I really believe that the next steps are much simpler than saying, even if you're uncomfortable being able to say to a person of color, you know, I, I want to hear what you have to say. I, I think that is harder when you haven't done it and it's not part of your practice and you're, you have an organization that is not as diverse as it could be. And I know that, and you know that, and you're still asking me to speak to you. I think that that says, that says everything. So James, I am a white man. <laughs> I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if you knew that or not, but that comes with obviously this huge amount of privilege particularly where I am kind of middle, I suppose, middle upper class, if you will. So when it comes to talking about what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, I, you know, using George Floyd as an example, or any number of the other African-American people who have been shot by police during traffic stops, uh, you know, for me, a traffic stop is like, well, damn, this is going to make me late, number one. And number two, uh, I'm going to have to shell out some money, and that's frustrating. I'm never worried about, like, my safety. So, again, it's difficult for me, I feel like, to get into that actual experience. Like, how can I even walk in your shoes? You know, I have been stopped by the police. I cannot tell you how many times. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. I... I my background is fine art. Uh, that's how I started in the communications world was through the fine art world. Um, I'm hesitant to say it out loud because I'm, I'm, I'm gifted, I'm very talented. I went to an, an arts high school. I got into all the top colleges that I wanted to get into. My first college acceptance was in New York City. I was really excited, I took the train up. Um, first person in my family to even apply for college I was accepted into a uh, really good art school in New York, right at the door, looked at the portfolio. I came home on the train and ran back to the school to tell my teacher, who was my mentor at the time, that I had gotten accepted and offered scholarship. And I was so excited, I was running. And I was pulled over by two squad cars and two plainclothes police officers that backed me up against the wall threw my artwork on the ground, handcuffed me, and I asked what was going on. And they said, you know, we saw you running. You were running really quickly. And I just I kept thinking this would never happen to a young white kid. And that, that's been the story of my life and the life of my friends. I have had several, you know, life or deaths, I think, moments with police officers. I mean, I, I think it is this we can't seem to extract out of ourselves and out of the police force this concept that African-Americans are essentially connected to crime and violence. And that's why I've always had a soft spot for the pit bull, because I feel like we are living the same life. And in fact, for the same reason, the disdain for the pit bull and the fear of the pit bull has more to do with who owns the pit bulls than the breed itself.
You know, when I grew up, the pit bull was the family dog of the little rascals. And as African-Americans moved away from German shepherds um, and moved towards pit bulls, um, all of a sudden pit bulls were the most evil dog um, on the planet. So, you know, somehow this work that we're doing and the and the place that I come from have, have blended into to one existence for me. I hope that everyone listening to this, I was going to start with this, which is really just a disclaimer um, and a request of everybody listening to keep an open mind and keep an open heart, regardless of your point of view or your understanding that you listen to this with that open mind and an open heart. And, and that story, you're, that is an experience, that is a very different American experience. Oh yeah, it, it, it's a different American experience, but it is an, a very American experience. When you're African-American and you're, you're gifted and you're intelligent, and you're fortunate, like like I was, you, you get to operate in two worlds. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois speaks to this in, in an essay. Um, it, it basically talks about this world you live in that is of color. And then if you're successful, folks mine your success, right? People, people are happy to take you under their employ or use you as a consultant. They don't want to pay you as much as they would a, a white person. But um, they will use you. And so still you get to see that world. I, I've had the opportunity to, in many ways, be embedded in a very white world. Um, animal welfare is just a part of that very white world. I've worked for large architectural firms and that field is also not very diverse. And so because I think of my talent, I've been afforded to see the other side. And whenever I'm asked to share a story about the lives of African-Americans, there is a competition of struggle that happens. If I say my grandfather, uh, both of them fought in World War II and they came back here without really the right to vote, redlining, um, all those things. My white counterpart says, well, my grandfather came from Europe and he came here with two cents to his name and a cleft foot and you know, all of these things start percolating. So there's this war of struggle that goes on. It, it is it is this desire, this sort of Americanism of saying, I've came from nothing and my grandparents made something of themselves. Pull yourself up from your, same, uh, from your own bootstraps. And I think what many white Americans don't understand is that all things being equal, Right, all things being equal. Let's just say for that both our, our grandparents had nothing. But when when black is criminalized and, and when black is a death sentence, it is an added level of difficulty. And if 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 my parents, myself, and my siblings have survived that, I think the fear is fear, real fear and discomfort from white folks is that we are ultimately saying we've survived something that was more difficult to, than you. So therefore we are stronger than you and therefore we are better than you. And I don't, I don't think that that's what it is. I, I, I think the human spirit is designed to conquer oppression. I think the human desire uh, wants to be free. And I think any, anything that you put on top of a human being that, li that limits their freedom they're going to find a way around it, just like water finds a way around almost anything. Water will find a way around. If, if either over the mountain, under the mountain, 
And I think human beings are that way, not just African-Americans, but human beings, Asian-Americans, Asians in general. And I think there is this desire or fear or discomfort, again, that when people are telling their stories of, of difficulty, there is this competition that somehow I'm saying your origin story makes you weaker because you weren't Black. And, I, and, I, and it's, to me, it's more that your origin story didn't have as many challenges as my origin story. And does it make me more human? Have, have African-Americans added the humanity um, that the Constitution originally was lacking? Absolutely. I think the African-American experience is, is, a, is a bright light for humanity, not a bright light for African-Americans in and of itself. So, yeah, I mean, it's a... It's a very different story, but I think it's one that we have to own so that we can figure out how to leverage. You know, how do we take that extra human story and make us bet all of us better Americans in the, in the process? So animal welfare. Animal welfare. You mentioned conferences earlier. At the beginning of this episode, we heard a story from Mark Peralta about his experience in animal welfare. Yes. And he talked about going to conferences. So it seems like maybe from uh, the point of view of a person of color, the conferences are just a really good way maybe to illustrate how we are in this regard. So I, I, I mean, I have to qualify that. I, I think the movement in general, I love it. I, I have always loved animals. I had no idea I would be in this field. I, I used to bring much to my parents' chagrin home dogs home all the time because I was afraid they were going to go onto the, you know, back then it was the pound truck. And so I've had as many as five large dogs uh, hidden away in the house at one time. And so I'm compelled by the field. Um, the thing that I notice the most at conferences is that I'm often the only one there. I may be the only speaker of color and I've, I've spoken at, at several conferences, but what I, it's not that I've resented, but what I've noticed is that my white counterparts can speak on anything. People ask shelter directors to speak on marketing. I mean, that's my field, right? I've, I've spent 25 years in mass comms. No one has asked me to speak on the power of marketing or blogs or anything like that. But you have shelter directors with no comms experience talking about comms, right? You have people talking about finance and fundraising um, that are also spay-neuter directors. And so it when you are a white American or a white person within animal welfare, you can speak on anything, including people of color. I've been to conferences and seen tracks on people of color where there are no people of color speaking. When those people are easy to find, especially I'm easy to find because people know what my role has been in the field. But when I'm speaking, I am, have only been offered uh, speaking engagements when it's related to people in poverty. My firm has done national research on free roaming cats that has changed the conversation around free roaming cats. We've, we've done national research on puppy mills and we've changed the conversation on puppy mills. I'm never asked to speak about anything that's not related to people of color as if I went to a people of color school. I, I didn't. I'm, I'm of color, but I've never had a people of color homework assignment, right? I've had the same homework you've had, the same math experience you've had. My experience in the business world is vast. I could probably speak on anything at a conference 
related to how to make the feel better. I appreciate the voice I'm being given to talk about inclusion and diversity, but I'm a smart person with a lot of experience and very rarely does anyone want to tap into that experience beyond my lived Brown experience. Um, and even then that's limited. Many times my, my good friend, Kenny Lamberti from Best Friends, formerly with HSUS, out of the 10 times, let's say I've been asked to speak, Kenny was asked first to speak. And, you know, it was Kenny's, I think, humility and saying, you know, I'm not going to speak on this topic. I'm going to ask James to speak on this topic because I believe it's a, it's a more authentic voice. Had it not been for, for Kenny just handing the mic over, I don't think I would have had very many speaking opportunities on any subject matter. And so I, I think we've got to, again, examine our privilege. I think asking others to, to the table is a form of reparations, if you will, that goes far beyond this concept of money. It's, it's more about, wow, you're here in this space and you're the only one here. You must have had a very rich journey in, in getting to this place and, and tell us what that was like. And so, yeah, the, the conference experience is, is, is interesting. The most interesting is all of these new tracks about people of color and social justice. And I think social justice is something you have to show and not something that you, you, you talk about at conference. But in general, I love the conferences. I think most of the people I've met have huge compassionate hearts. And I think this idea that, you know, in the field that we hate people, but we love animals, I think that's starting to wane. And I'm glad to see it. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that um, care can be more a part of that process of, of us falling back in love with each other again. And in the process, uh, creating better human beings for, for animals to be partnered with, right? Because ultimately, when that animal leaves the shelter, it's leaving the shelter with a human being and that human being needs to be loved and, and fortified so it can return that same love and fortification to to the animal. And I, I, I think we're moving in that direction. But we go with what we know and we go with what we're comfortable with, right? Like it, it's easy for me to go to a conference and be in a room educating or talking about issues with you know, a room full of white people. It's easy for me to go and do an adoption event in a predominantly white neighborhood, middle class. It's easy for me to do that. It's comfortable. Right. I don't intentionally think about that, James. I don't think, thank God I'm going to the white neighborhood to do adoptions today. It's going to be so much easier. It's just what we've done. Right. So it's, it, and, and I saw a line this week uh, that I thought was interesting, which is it's not enough to be not racist. You have to be anti-racist. Like yes. you have to be really intentional. You know, we have to think about it and not just let, I guess, like the subconscious guide us. Yes. But I think being anti-racism or being pro-feminist or I, I understand the need for these segregated isms, right? But the, the reality is, is that I just want people to be the best Americans that they can be, right? We've already written all these things down. On paper, they are beautiful. They sound beautiful. I think as, as flawed as our founders were and in not including everyone, which includes women, the principal concepts are there, right? I mean, I, I think all, all I think we have to ask ourselves is, are we being fair? Are we treating one another the same way? 
Am I treating you the way I would want to be treated? I think that is, I mean, I, I learned that early. I, I, I think I, I fell in love with coming from a religious family and obviously our constitution is sort of a religious derivative. That idea that we would just treat one another the way we would want to be treated, I think is a, is a pretty easy thing. And I don't think you can do that without being anti-racist or being anti-sexist. And so I think we just, all of us have to learn how to love a little bit better. And I don't think you can love a person and be racist, not, not love in the sense of a verb, right? Not in this like silly, like, I love you, I love all people, I don't see color. I mean, I think that's just silly, right? I mean, when you love someone, you, you one, you ask them <laughs> how they're doing and you listen um, to their pain. And so, you know, I, I really don't, my people are unique to me. I love them, but on a much greater sense, I love people. And I, I don't want to see anyone uncomfortable. I don't want to see anyone in pain. I've helped all kinds of people in my business. I've had all kinds of interns in my business. And I, I think I'm a better person for absorbing all of those different stories. And I, I, I think there's room in this movement for us to do that. And if we can do that, the reality is more animals will be saved, right? If we can lower our fear and our discomfort and work more towards more inclusion, diversity will happen. And then more people will become part of the network and fall in love with the movement and more animals will be saved. We will raise more money and we will have more volunteers. But I think the first thing is to, is to get past yourself because ultimately it's not about your discomfort. It's, it's about the discomfort of animals in a, you know, a, a, a six by 10 cage. And if you love them, you will get past your fear or, and discomfort with the other, with the other. Even if it's, even if your discomfort is with the fact that you didn't realize you were being, you know, uninclusive or semi-racist or whatever you want to call it in the first place. It's like, okay, fine. That feel uncomfortable and then move forward. Like let it go and and start thinking about what's best for these animals that literally don't belong in a cage. I mean, it is the, the most painful thing in the world for me to watch even the happiest animal. I mean, dogs are supposed to be running around. I'm sorry, like you you can be the best shelter director this world has ever seen. And, and ultimately animals don't belong in cages. And I guess I have a personal connection to that because many of my relatives are have been behind bars but i just i i think the way forward as silly as it sounds is is with love and compassion and and the way you open is with listening you know and it's not a it's not about listening to see where you can jump in and and figure out if your you know suffrage story is is more desperate than mine it's just listen to me and um, let's move forward together with solutions that I think are unique to my experience. And, you know, you have solutions that might be unique to yours. So best friends, one of our guiding principles is kindness. And you wouldn't believe how controversial that word can be <laughs> when, when it comes to certain issues, you know? Right. Um, it, it, and so I think that can be very illustrative uh, for me and hopefully for others to realize when we talk about kindness, we don't apply it individually to things we want to apply it to. When we talk about kindness, we mean kindness. Yes, that is, it's an open 
It is an open book. It means that you're kind to poor people the same way you are kind to, to wealthy people. You know, one would argue that every human exchange is somewhat of a political exchange, right? I, I, I'm going to, if you, if I know that you're wealthy, I'm going to be kind to you because you may do something for me down the road. But if you are not wealthy and you come into the shelter or the rescue and I can see that you're not wealthy, maybe I'm not going to be so kind to you. Maybe there's nothing in it for me to be kind to you. And I think that, you know, do those biases happen? And I think that's the first thing that we all have to deal with is, yes, they happen. Like it happens in your head. But the first person you have to, I think, start listening to is yourself. Right. I think many of us aren't even listening to our own voice and saying, does does my voice. Is it incongruent with the principles that I'm projecting? You know, the, does that does that police officer that has his knee on Floyd's neck, is he listening to his own voice? Is, is the voice where he swore to uphold the law? And so the answer is obviously no. But what is the other voice that he's listening to? You know, Floyd's a black guy. He's probably a criminal and criminals should be punished. And, and I believe that they should be. But police officers' jobs aren't to punish. That Their jobs are to deliver that person's body into a courtroom so that a court of law can decide whether or not a crime happened in the first place. It, it would be like an EMT um, coming to a scene and doing open heart surgery on the sidewalk. Right? That's, that's not the EMT's job. The EMT's job is to get the person to the hospital, period. And whether or not they're wealthy, whether or not they're poor, whether or not they smell bad, whether or not they're cursing, your job is to get that person to the hospital. And the police, their job is to get that person into a courthouse. But instead, you know, too many officers are listening to a voice other than the voice that they swore to listen to. Animal welfare, the same thing. We like to say that we speak dog and cat, and in reality, we speak human because dogs don't really care who comes to get them and love them, and neither do cats. So who are we really listening to? We are, we are listening to narratives about other people, but we are certainly not listening to the animals because the, the animals, I think, listen at a much, much higher level than we do. Their, their simple minds allow them to hear very simple stories. Love and pain. You hurt me, I'm gonna run. You love me, I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna stick by you. Human beings, we, we have all these, this big brain and we're listening to all these other voices and we just need to simplify and get back down to, am I being kind? Is the person that's walking into the shelter, do I believe that they're capable of being kind? And I and I think, do, are we going to get it wrong? Absolutely. I've, I've gotten that wrong hundreds of times, trusted the wrong person. But I think by and large, most people are kind and most people are kinder when they are presented with kindness. Right. And so I think your guiding principles are are dead on. And we just have to ask ourselves, are we operating with our selfish voice or are we operating with a collective good voice and that's you know it's a battle that happens all day every day and it's not like i said you're going to get it wrong but i, I think without listening and just being on sort of autopilot um and i and not slowing down and saying listening to your own voice is i think is the real the real tragedy uh, travel it feeds my soul 
getting on that plane, going to a new land, and you experience these new cultures, right? And there are different views on pet ownership. Costa Rica, a place that we love, the first time we went, we saw, very quickly, we saw a dog on the side of the road. So what was our instinct, right? It was to get out and rescue that dog. So we jump out and go over to this dog and we realize the dog is incredibly healthy, has a collar. And the third thing we noticed was a gray muzzle. So this dog that was probably a senior dog. Yeah, like 10 years old had been living by this road <laughs> his entire life, was certainly getting fed and cared for. And it was that moment of, man, not everything is the way I see it or think it should be. That's correct. And I think if there's a pitfall for us that maybe we need to get around, it is that different cultures, even here within America, view pet ownership differently, but it's not bad. No, it, no. A lot of cultures, including the ones within the country, see pet ownership different, but they see pet ownership different because their lives are different. So their perception of their pets is congruent with their lifestyle. So, you know, we go to a foreign country, say a Puerto Rico, and there are roaming animals. And, and obviously some of them are really not in good health, but I don't think that's always the case. And so, but I think our immediate response is that's not how I would have my pet at, at my own house. But one, we're, we're very fast and quick to, to rescue the animal and not so fast to rescue the person on the other side of the leash, which is also interesting because if, we, if we're willing to elevate you know, the lifestyle of people in our own country, they will make different choices when that elevation increases, just like uh, white Americans have since going from farmers to merchants to educators and then from educators to being inheriting money and not working as less or as long, right? It's like decisions are, are made differently along the way. And so I, I don't think you have one um, before the other. You don't change sort of this monolithic view of pet ownership before you add diversity and inclusion. It's a, it's a chicken and an egg type of thing. You, you have to become more diverse before the field starts to perceive pet ownership differently than what it is, because it's it's part and parcel of a middle-class white lifestyle. If, for instance, everyone in, in animal welfare, if it was possible, was a billionaire, it's very likely those folks would be looking down on the middle-class people that are currently running animal welfare because those folks would probably have the most posh groomers, the biggest yards. I mean, much, much bigger than, than our yards. I mean, we're talking acres. And imagine someone's walking around saying, you know, your quarter acre is just not good enough for a German Shepherd. You know, a German Shepherd should have at least five acres to roam around in. And a trainer, everyday trainer, you know, an hour every day. And, and, and that's, and for those folks, that that's feasible and it makes sense. Uh, but if you are middle class and you're making eighty thousand, you've got two kids, you've got a dog, you know, you can't you can't possibly live up to that standard. And I, and again, you know, we discussed earlier, it really is about putting your yourself in someone else's shoes. If I make twenty six thousand dollars. And, you know, I live in a community where there are roaming animals 
And I can make a commitment to not only walk that animal if I don't have a yard, or I'm willing to eat a bit less myself to ensure that that pet has the food it needs. And this happens every day. Am I not sacrificing more? If, am, am I not in, in some ways loving that animal more than someone that has a yard that they just open the door and the dog runs out? And I'm not with the dog. The dog is not experiencing any kind of affection or playfulness for me. I'm just opening the door because I have a quarter acre. But if I'm an, if I'm an urbanite, and I'm walking the dog and we're talking, at least I'm talking to the dog, right? And, you know, I think I think there's something about that, the communing that happens when you don't have several acres that just let a dog loose, when you have to walk the dog every morning and that dog is bumping into other dogs because, again, you're an urbanite. And so you're, there's some socialization that's happening that's not happening in urban areas where, again, people are just randomly opening the door. So I think we have to we have to look at advantages on both sides and and really come together and execute best practices in any situation. There are best practices I think for homeless pet ownership just like there are best practices for you know the Oprah Winfrey's of the world who may have all the money in in the world but maybe they're not communing in the, in, in the same way with the animal as someone that's homeless and has the animal curled up with them all day and all night. Our goal is saving lives. We want to end the killing of cats and dogs in shelters. And to that end, we've done incredible work. We've made incredible progress. I think 733,000 animals killed last year. Um, we've got our new data set coming out next month. So I'm really looking forward to seeing where we are now. I looked this up after you said this to me when we talked yesterday, African-American population in the United States, 12.7%. The Latino community, I think 12.4%. Yeah. So that's 150 million, or sorry, 75, I'm bad at math, 75 million Americans. Yeah. That I think as a movement, we do a very bad job working with and marketing to. Yes. Because of my comms background, and I, I should say quick, background story, fine art school, love for cars and all things functional, went to industrial design school, left school, um, ended up working for a Christmas decor company, which is hilarious. Um, but I was designing elements and drawing elements. And that quickly, quickly led me to architectural firms where we're doing a lot of retail work. And then from there, I was hired by several other communications firms and communications firms and then started my own business in 1999. Um, my first client was the NAACP. And so for years, by the way, we were doing great work for the NAACP, but it was really hard for me to break my portfolio out of that because I would meet with folks and they would say, oh, you've got a, a great portfolio. You're clearly talented, but you know, it, they're just black people in this portfolio. And my response is, so what? Like, if, if the work is good, the work is good. And so our, because there were so many people of color in my original portfolio, a lot of the work that we have done was centered around organizations that wanted to help people of color. Smoking cessation, early teenage pregnancy, anti-gun violence, all of those things um, are part of our portfolio. And then animal welfare became part of that portfolio. And so um, that's sort of the origin story from that sort of 
what I consider true social justice, which is NAACP. It doesn't really get much better than that. And then sweeping into the animal welfare field. But one thing is for sure, having been in this field, I've had um, development officers from some of the largest animal welfare um, organizations say to me that they were uncomfortable with reaching out to African-American donors. And it just, that, that kind of statement just shocks me. It's like, they're very wealthy African-Americans. There are very, very wealthy Latinos that we're doing a poor job reaching out to, to tell our story. And I think there is a fear that if we reach out to those folks and they look back at us and see how white animal welfare is, um, they may not be as generous. And that may or may not be true, but a lot of those folks have animals. They have pets. They understand spay and neuter. They understand um, fur free. I mean, Hollywood is, is was, you know, sort of the center of the fur free movement. And so why shouldn't that be the center of all types of different movements, right? I, I just think we're missing a lot. But yes, there are millions and millions of people of color who, by the way, have pets, love their pets. But I think it's unfortunate is that because we haven't come in to fill the gap and sell ourselves to those folks, that um, many of those folks are not thinking of us as the place to come for animals, you know, friends and family, um, they're purchasing pets online. So we have to constantly remind ourselves that the bond between animal and human is innate. There is literally nothing that any of us are going to be able to do about that. Someone that wants to share their life with a companion animal is going to do it. So we need to present ourselves as the de facto place to get animals. And that means being kind to people that are walking through the door. That means literally reaching out to people of color going to Baptist churches, going to Catholic churches where Latino leadership is, and saying not just have you spayed and neutered, right? That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're asking that leadership to come into animal welfare. Will you be on my board? You have a, a, a Black church with 5,000 members. <laughs> that, that person is a person that you should be looking at to be on your board. That's 5,000 members that are that are coming to that mega church that have another 5,000 people that they're connected to. I, I, I want animal welfare to understand that, you know, most of the people of color I know have pets. The numbers are almost exactly as white Americans. And are they getting them from shelters? No, they're getting them from one another. But I think we can move people away from having pets at home, backyard breeding, and start bringing them into the fold so that we can start creeping away from killing any pets. I think when you're looking at that that opportunity gap of you know 75 million people, all we need is a few percentage of those people um, to make a dramatic Im impact, uh, the 3% increase and in people of color adopting just 3% um, would save 2 million animals. And so, you know, God forbid what would happen if we could add 10% of, of those people uh, to um, the team. And I, I just think we were missing donors, we're missing volunteers. We're missing fosters and um, we're missing folks that are willing to adopt. And so 
Um, the incentive, I think, is there. The question is, do we really see the urgency of saving these pets' lives above the biases that we might have? I think, again, going back to the Civil War, I think that's something that, you know, Lincoln and others had to ask themselves. Do, do we do we want to save the Union so badly that we're willing to accept brown soldiers? And obviously the answer was yes. I mean, would I prefer <laughs> that we just love one another without the incentive? Sure. But for those that need that incentive, it's right there. There are millions of animals waiting to be saved as soon as you're ready to reach over to the other side. And I think that that sort of question, why aren't both folks coming to us, might come to mind. And I think for, for many folks that are coming up in a different type of community that you may have come up in, they may not know you exist. The, the term animal welfare <laughs> uh, doesn't even come to mind. Um, the shelter in many places around the country are, is connected to law enforcement. This idea that you know animal control in some cities are connected to where you might go and adopt an animal, I think that's problematic for some folks. So we have to reassure folks that we are there. Animal control is there to help them, not just punish them. Um, these are communities that are overly policed in the first place. And so there, I think there is a fear that as soon as they interact with animal control, it's gonna be about what laws they're breaking, what policies that, that need to be enforced versus where is the support? You know, I see that your dog is not spayed and neutered or I see that your animal is tethered and that's that's not the policy here. Um, well, my animal is tethered because I live in an apartment. My landlord refuses to put a put a fence up. So then it's our job, these mega million dollar organizations to start putting more weight and legislative weight, not on just sort of animal protection issues, but human protection issues, making sure that folks that live in an apartment can actually have a have a pet that that can become a legislative movement that that's something we can put money around because I'm not sure that it's a a good policy to just blanketly tell folks they can't have a pet as long as they're willing to pay a little extra money for any damage that's done and we can step in there as well and break down those barriers so it's not just about animal protection I think it's about supporting human beings that are sitting right there waiting, waiting for us to do something. Yeah, I once had a private veterinarian tell me to my face very seriously that poor people shouldn't own pets. I've heard that so many times. And my questions were, define poor, right. like what is your income threshold? What are you going to do for people that have pets that don't meet it? Are you just going to go take them all? Right. Um, what are you, you going to do when they get more pets because they have the same desire for companionship. They have the right. same human. I mean, that it's just, it's astounding sometimes the way that we've looked at these things. So again, I'm, I'm thrilled that it's changing, but we do have a long way to go, which now let's talk about care and how we can do better. I'm a shelter director. I'm an executive director of a humane society. I work at a foundation. I hear this. I recognize it. I've put Black Lives Matter on my Facebook profile this week. <laughs> you know, I'm quote unquote woke, but I recognize that I want to do more. What do I do? How do I make things more diverse and, and be inclusive and, and listen? Like, what, what can I do right now? Yeah, that's I, I, a great question. I mean, I, I think if Black Lives Matter, then I think you have to ask, why aren't there Black Lives in your life? 
Right. <laughs> I think that is the question, right? What, where are the black lives in your life that are not abstract? Do you have a black dentist? Do you have a black attorney? And I don't mean does your organization, in many cases they don't, right? And, and I don't mean black for the sake of black, but I mean making it meaningful. There are people of color, of, of vendors all over the place. And I think we have to start rebalancing the imbalance, right? Slavery in and of itself was not about racism. Racism and colonialism and all of those things are bad things. But at the, at the bedrock of slavery was about money. It's about capital. It's about being able to produce the most valuable commodity in the world and not have to pay for the labor. So there's no bigger profit than that. And so everything that's happened after slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, all of these things are about I am as a as a as a white machine, right? Not as a white individual, but a white machine. I am going to I am going to keep all the wealth for myself and I am going to make sure other people don't have the wealth. That is the that is the crux of of racism and coming from slavery. And the correction now is what can I do as an individual? What can I do as an organization to redistribute wealth in such a way that that brings more people to the table? When all of the boats rise, beautiful things happen, right? If you have this concept that that you want to do something to me, it has to start with weaponizing your wallet. I think that's the real revolution is saying, I am going to support brands that support people of color and underserved neighborhoods. I am going to I'm going to spend my own personal money in places that I know are going to benefit people of color the most. And that doesn't mean necessarily buying the next album from Dre. I think it means some deeper things in that and and not think of um, African-Americans as not part of the labor force, right? Animal welfare needs what every organization needs. We need accountants, we need attorneys, uh, we need veterinarians. Uh, you know, right now, Tuskegee is still the largest um, producer of African-American vets. And I think animal welfare ought to do something about that. That's something that can be done right now. The three largest animal welfare organizations can get on the phone or sign some sort of working agreement that they are going to call all the major vet schools around the country and say, together, we're going to bring more kids to the table. And unfortunately, because so many African-Americans and uh, people of color live in underserved neighborhoods, some of those kids and some of those scholarship programs or leadership programs may have to start on a junior high school level, not on a high school level, like what you might see at a predominantly white school. So some of those kids are going to need more support. Those are things you could do right now. I mean, when hurricanes hit Katrina, I mean, the, the organization that happens uh, within animal welfare to go and save dogs and cats, which I applaud. I just don't understand why we can't spend a quarter of that effort to help our brothers and sisters and, and helping them. What, what, what is going to happen when, you know, a best friend, for instance, um, takes the power of a best friend and starts looking at some of the, some of the graduating classes of, of vets and sees, 
oh, wow, this, this veterinary class of 2020 is all white women. What, you know, there are people in your leadership that can pick up the phone and call that vet school and say, we are a large organization with a lot of, you know, financial prowess, political prowess. What can we do to help you bring more people of color to your vet school? Can we go, can we say to Kenny, you know, while you are, Kenny, this is Kenny Lamberti within Best Friends, there, you know, you have an action team. You've got, now you've got action team members all over the country that are willing to help you save pets. But can you, can you email those people back and say, how many of you are interested or know someone of color that's interested in being a veterinarian, right? I think you, you have the, the power. I think it's just about, it's about designing it and being organized in the same way you would you would organize a rescue effort. And in some ways it's financial and in other ways it's, it is simply making the effort and saying, where can we start filling in the blanks? But on the office side, right, there are lots, and I'll send you a couple of links of folks who own businesses that are specially designed um, for capturing high quality people of color um, so that businesses can take advantage of those names, of those resources. And CARE will be doing the same thing. We're, we have a database that we've started where we're collecting uh, names of people who are interested in working in the field and we're targeting public health workers because there's so much about public health that is related to sheltering and saving animals. And public health is, by its nature, a field that's already diverse. So, so my desire is to take this diverse field, the very smart people, and and saying, here's animal welfare. Can you can you please help animal welfare? Help the people on the other side of the leash. Having that kind of advantage, I think, would be huge. Lots of different ways to bring people of color to the table, but I think it has to start with um, breaking down barriers to within their own underserved communities finding resources to make sure we are bringing a new level of training to people of color so that we're prepping them for the field that many of them will be as passionate about as anyone else. And, and lastly, on the executive level, the folks I know in animal welfare come from all kinds of places, social work, medicine, law, and African-Americans and Latino-Americans um, occupy those spaces. And so being a shelter director and in your previous life, you may have been, you know, a doctor or an attorney. There are lots, there are lots of folks in that same genre that can be brought to animal welfare. I think we just need to make that extension. We need to make that possible. So that's one of the things that CARE is, is trying to do. We have a R&D department that's focused on researching bias. Um, we're working with Harvard's um, Project Implicit. So Project Implicit is already focused on bias, but we want to know about the know and understand the unique biases that that are happening with animal welfare. The next division of care is a narrative division. We're focused on telling stories. It could be children's books, it could be videos or what have you, literally on making African American and people of color the heroes in, in animal stories. I mean you think about the, the top 10 animal uh, movies that you've ever seen, and most of those people are white men, uh, literally man's best friend. 
even though most of us know women are the primary caretakers of animals, but you don't see any any women, white or Latino or black, on the cover of you know an animal movie. Um, and so we're trying to change that. And the last division is training, where we we really want to step in and fill that gap of unanswered questions about how we can bring people of color to the table, and also how can we start mechanically and I think habitually not getting rid of our biases because they, they, they're going to always exist, but it's more like listening to our biases and, and asking ourselves, does that really make sense? And does that move towards life-saving? And then obviously in most cases, our biases make absolutely no sense. And so I think we, we just need to be more critical about the way we're thinking and that those little voices we're listening to in our heads. James, if we're talking about leadership, I, you know, I mean, we're still working on smashing the patriarchy and animal welfare. You know, I wish I could remember the exact numbers, but I think it's like our field is 85% female and it's hugely disproportionate with like 15 or 20% female leadership. Yes, it's just like in a, it's just like in a church. You know, if, if women stopped bringing their families to churches and stopped volunteering at churches, there would be no churches. There'd just be a bunch of, you know, ministers walking around. You know, obviously I, I come from a household with three sisters and no brothers and a strong mother. So it was just me and my dad. We figured it out quickly, but I think women in many ways are, are the engine of society and men unfortunately muscle their way into the driver's seat and i and i mean that literally you know that that upper body strength has gone a long way and 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 in quote civil society and i think what animal welfare has to do what women in animal welfare have to do is is understand and recognize their own struggle and not pass on that same struggle to people of color. If, if you if you understand what sexism looks like and you understand what dominance looks and feels like, don't pass that on to your darker brothers and sisters because ultimately it's hypocritical, right? It, it's hypocritical to, to do the same to someone else when I, I, I think that is, that's what I mean by listening to our own voices. If you're if you recognize yourself as a victim, then the first thing I think is important to do is not to victimize someone else um, right after that. And if you are doing that, then you're not listening to your own narrative. So yes, it's a very, is a female dominated field. And so I, I would expect that cluster of women understand much better than the cluster of men, particularly white men, how it feels to be paid a quarter less on the dollar, right? And so when a person comes in that is impoverished, that person in many ways has been dominated and been subjugated. And so don't look down on that person, recognize that person as part of your of your story and do better, right? Um, and But that requires listening. And I, and I don't mean just out of mechanics, I hear you. I mean, I, I'm actually, listening to you and I understand where you come from because I come from a, a similar place. So I think um, I think one of the roots of kindness is actually understanding what it what it was like to be treated unkindly, but to be untreated unkindly and then treat someone else the same way. I just think it is a clear sign of 
of not really taking in the whole story. Define diversity and inclusion and explain why for us in animal services, animal welfare, why is it important? There's been a lot of research out there that says the that the more diverse the team, the smarter the team, right? And I think that is absolutely true, but I think it's it sounds scary to some white folks. But I think, let's think of it this way. Let's say that you and I are playing a word game where, you know, it's a word scramble. I give you a bunch of letters and I have a bunch of letters and we see who comes up with the most words, right? But the trick to the game is that I'm giving you five letters from the alphabet and I'm going to keep, I'm going to use 17, right? Obviously, if I'm using 17 letters from the alphabet and you only have five letters from the alphabet, there's nothing wrong with your five. There's nothing wrong with a bunch of white people. But if I have 17 letters against your five, I am going to come up with more words. So that's why diverse teams are smarter. It's not because black people are smarter or Latino people are smarter or Japanese people are smarter. It's that there are more letters of the alphabet at play. That's what diversity is. It is including everyone's skill set and everyone's way of thinking focused in on one problem. And right now you have animal welfare focused in on a problem that affects everyone, but not everyone is at the table. James, your organization CARE, Companions and Animals for Reform and Equity, so this is a newly launched organization. Uh, I know you're going to be doing some education and training, but what is the deal with CARE and how can people help? We are ambitiously trying to make something large on the narrative scale. And we need donations towards that. I mean, we want to make a pretty epic piece about people of color and their love for their animals. We essentially want to tell, we want to do a full size narrative, Hollywood style and all budget wise, highlights people of color um, in the same way that white Americans have been highlighted in the companion animal way. We're working on a documentary and a, and a full length movie. And so those donations are, are important to us. Narrative is why we find ourselves where we are. Um, the narratives that have subjugated people of color, just like the narratives that subjugate women, women aren't smart, women aren't mathematic, women aren't, you know, scientific. Those are narratives. And, and we want to do something on the lines of hidden figures, which changes that narrative. I mean, that, that, what a what a great piece for a young white young man to see. Not only do you see women, but you see women of color at the highest places of at NASA. That's dinner conversation, and 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 the kid says, "Is that real? Is that a real story? Is that a real lady? Did she re did she really make those computations?" And your answer is yes, yes, son. That's what really happened. I think that is that is the power of storytelling. That's what human beings have done since the dawn of time is tell one another stories. And I think we want to start telling those stories. And by the way, we don't want to tell our narrative direction is not to tell diversity stories. That's not what we're doing. We just want to tell true stories of people of color um, and their love for their pets. So we are really trying to, in the in the near future, our 501c3 just got approved. 
Um, so we really want to drive those donations because our primary focus is on changing the narrative. Now, are we doing trainings and whatnot? Absolutely. But training inside of animal welfare is even if we capture the roughly 45,000 people in animal welfare, right? That's such a tiny part of the world. The, the world is in the millions and people coming to animal welfare, right, are coming from the world. And so the world has a narrative about people of color that we want to change inside the companion animal space. So in other words, currently, if you think about it, the large animal welfare folks are telling a narrative about companion animals. And most of that narrative is that people hurt companion animals. That drives a lot of donations. So millions and millions and millions of dollars are being spent on telling the world that animals are hurt every day. And so what happens? Animal welfare is part of that world. Animal welfare employees are part of that world. So they come to animal welfare from the world, right? And they come to the field because they want to rescue animals because of the narratives that we keep that we keep propagating that animals are out there being hurt. Are they? Yes, but not in large numbers. And in a much larger number, animals are being loved and being cared for and being sacrificed for. And so narrative is strong. And so if, if animal welfare wants to find a way to fall in love with people, then we've got to stop constantly saying that people are hurting animals. We should be saying, yes, people hurt animals. And yes, it's horrific, but people also love animals. And some of those people that love animals are people of color. And so our narrative division wants to reach high. We want to be out there telling narratives that the whole world sees that incites the next generation of animal welfare workers. That is our goal is to change the narrative high. So the training is for people that it currently exists. The narratives are for those people that haven't even come to the field yet. Um, so that's really important to us. Finally today, I understand you are a birder. You mentioned it earlier. I am a birder. Now, I'm surprised you didn't say something to me about it. My name is John Dunn, and apparently I have a namesake in the birding world, some sort of world-famous ornithologist, John Dunn. Oh. Uh, but I want to ask you for your birding story. Like, what is the one bird that you saw or this experience? Like, you're at the bar with all the other birders. Like, what's the story you tell? So I have got the perfect story for you. And it, it, is, it is, it's mind blowing and insane. And to me, again, proves that the, the universe, we are all connected. And I, I believe that. So this is one of my first birding experiences, real birding experiences. Um, I was a novice and I literally just drove to a park here in, in, in Baltimore called Druid Hill Park. It's our biggest park. It's sort of like you, like New York Central Park. I drive to the park. I get out of my car. I have my lens with me. And I look up into the to the air and I think I see an eagle. So I point the lens up and I see the eagle flying by. It's the first time in my life that I've ever seen an eagle. And so I'm thinking to myself, where is this bird going? And I'm, I know, I'm again, I'm a novice here, but I know eagles like fish and I know they like water. All right, where are the largest bodies of water in that direction, and I'm using my map uh, application on my iPhone. 
And so I see this huge body of water, um, a lake inside of Baltimore. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to drive to this lake and I'm going to look around, but I got to figure out where to park because the lake has a, a, a road next to it that runs adjacent to the lake. There's nowhere to pull over. So there's a little parking lot that I see on, on the map. And so I hit the drop pin and I just drop the pin right on the parking lot. And I drive furiously 20 minutes to this place. And I figure I would get out the car, have my hiking boots on, and I was going to find this eagle because, of course, it's got to be somewhere around. Literally, I put the car in park. I get out of the car. I turn around and the eagle is above me. I've told the story to a lot of friends and it's for me, it, it was a awakening. Now, was it that same eagle? Maybe it wasn't. But the idea that I see this thing in the air and I put a drop pin and in the most arbitrary place, I park on the drop pin, get out of the car and there's my first eagle. That's my first eagle picture. And the first person that I send the picture to and text to is Kenny Lamberti. And Kenny completely flips out and he's like going on and on about how this is the universe. And I'm like, I know. And we're like laughing and we have only grown closer since that moment. And I've only become a better photographer since then. At that moment, that was the first time I'd ever seen what I would consider an exotic bird. And so there was a group of friends that thought that didn't mean anything. And coincidentally, those folks are not in my life anymore. And then there are a group of friends that thought the universe was speaking to me and I've only grown closer to those folks. And is it self-fulfilling? Maybe, I don't know. But um, one thing is for sure, that's not something that happens to someone every day. And and I recognize that, but I that is the that has been my commitment is to stay in love with animals, get outside as much as I can and, and listen to the balance in nature. I mean, there's some violence there. There's some little thing killing some other little thing all the time, but not because it looks different, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's only because it's, it's part of the food chain. And there's just, it's such a natural balance outside. And I think we have to Get outside, listen to nature, listen to ourselves more often, because um, I, I really believe that's the that's the key is 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 listening and then moving after that. The podcast team: Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, Tawny Hammond, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>